You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So, we are kicking off a brand new series called A Timely Tale. We are walking through the book of Jonah, and uh, we're very excited to dive into this book and see what God has for us here. And so our text today will be found in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. Uh, you can turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we do have some uh, hardback Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, there are uh, two different kinds there. One will be on page 726, one will be on page 744. So just get to one of those pages. You should be able to find uh, the book of Jonah. Once again, that's Jonah chapter 1. If you are willing and able this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read together and I apologize in advance for my pronunciation of these names. just want to let that be loud and clear. Once again, Jonah chapter 1, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. So glad to see you. Uh, Welcome. If it's your first time, I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. My name's Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, like Eric said, we're kicking off our fall series, uh, walking through the book of Jonah, uh, which is a four-chapter book, one of the minor prophets. And it's one of them, it's, it's a more familiar book to, to most of us, um, especially if you've had any church experience, and in particular, experience in church and children's ministry. You know, it's all, we always kind of talk about the book of Jonah and kids' ministry. And that's because there's a supernatural element to it where a big fish swallows someone, which is always fun to talk to kids about. Um, but what I'd love to do before we, before we pray is just kind of talk a little bit about an overview of the book. You know, what, what is Jonah really about? What happens in this book? Uh, and then we're going to focus really on just the first two verses this morning uh, in particular. And then we'll pray before we do that. But so, so the book of Jonah kind of looks like this. It, it starts off very matter-of-factly. God calls a man named Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh, which is a great Assyrian city, and to preach against the city, to, to preach about the uh, impending judgment that God's going to bring on this city. Um, Jonah, right off the bat, doesn't seem too crazy about this idea and goes directly the opposite way. He runs away from this calling, away from the presence of the Lord, gets on a boat and tries to book it away from this calling that God has sent him to. Now, this kind of makes sense uh, for a couple of reasons, but the most, the most primary one would be that because Nineveh is such a large city and such a godless city, this would be like, you know, God calls you to take your boombox to, I don't know, the middle of ISIS country and play KSBJ and preach the gospel. You know, that's kind of the idea of what's happening here. So it makes sense as to why Jonah would be like, nah, hard pass on that. I'm going to go elsewhere. That's what he does. But he pays the fare. He gets on a boat. The Bible continues to say that God sends a storm. And this storm begins to overtake this boat. The sailors that are on the boat, which you can always identify with these guys, they are kind of freaking out. What's happening? Why is this? This storm's not a normal storm. It's a supernatural storm. They start praying to their gods because at this time, the, the society itself is very pagan. They're all praying to their own gods saying, please save us. Nothing will change. They, there's anybody on this boat that isn't praying to their God. Well, Jonah's in the 
down at the bottom of the boat sleeping. So the captain wakes up. I like, what are you sleeping for? Like, cry out to your God, you fool. We gotta, we're going to die. And uh, they end up having to roll the dice, which God is pleased to let the dice fall on Jonah as the guy that's the problem. And so they're like, what'd you do? Jonah's like, I'm running away from God. They're like, why? At first, you know, the sailors, they, they act... Uh, well, they act admirably at first. They try to, to row back to shore, and the Bible says that the wind keeps pushing them back. They're not making any headway. God's having none of it. And so they say, God, forgive us, but this guy's trouble. And they throw him in the water. And here's the craziest part is Jonah is the one who like, offers up the idea. He's like, just throw me in the water. Let's just be done with this. He goes into the water. He sinks down to the bottom. Before he's going to die, God, it says, the Bible says God appoints a large fish and swallows him. It's like the worst spiritual timeout in the Bible. He gets swallowed by a whale or a large fish at least, and he basically is with stomach acid and bile. He has to have his talk with God for three days. The Bible records that Jonah repents, that he says, I will I'll fulfill my vow to be obedient to you. And I always, my, my kids love this story. When they ask me to tell a story, I always tell them Jonah. And so uh, I have to tell, you know, they, they're very good friends. Jonah's in particular is very good friends with Jonah Elder. And so whenever I tell the story, I always have to say, we're going to talk about Jonah, not Jonah Elder. So when I ask him about the story, you know, which story do you want me to tell you? He'll say, not Jonah Elder. And so this is their favorite part of the story, though, because Jane and Jonas both go, ew. It said the Bible says that they, literally the fish pukes Jonah onto the, onto the shore. That after the prayer, God pukes him back onto the beach. And I always tell my kids, this is extra biblical. You can judge me. I say after a shower, Jonah goes to Nineveh because that's disgusting, you know. And they're all like, ew. All right. Well, he goes to Nineveh and kind of starts over. Chapter 3 starts over. Let's restart this. You're going to go to Nineveh. You're going to preach out against it. And Jonah does exactly that. Goes into the city. Says in 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. And then the most surprising part of the book, more surprising than a fish swallowing a human, is that the whole city from the least to the greatest repents. It's like they, they hear that message and they're like, yeah, we are wrong. We're We've really done bad. And they put sackcloth on their bodies. They sit in ashes. They fast and weep. It says that the king hears word of this message from Jonah, and he makes a, an edict across the entire land and says, no one can eat or drink water, not even your animals, and let's cry out to God, and maybe he'll show us mercy. It's just an unbelievable revival that happens with this guy. And what, what the Bible says is that God sees this and relents from the disaster. And the last chapter of Jonah it has Jonah sitting basically outside the city, kind of like posted up, ready for the fireworks, you know, ready for this place to just get, you know, destroyed. And it doesn't. And you get an, kind of an understandable reaction, perhaps, but definitely a, a dark reaction, which is, I knew you would do this, God. You're too merciful. Why won't you just end these people? That's what he said. He said, you didn't have to have me come preach. You could have just been merciful. He's mad and resentful about it. And so the last chapter is this engagement with, of God with Jonah about how he should view the city of Nineveh, um, maybe just like God views him and showed him mercy in the belly of the fish. Okay, now, Jonah's not just a child story. You know, we focus on the supernatural fish part because it is, it's fun. It's fun to tell our kids but it's bigger than that. You know, Jonah is a story with major themes about life. It's a story about sin. It's a story about judgment. It's a story about the consequences of rejecting God, both, both national consequences and personal consequences. But it's also a story about God's mercy, how God loves us, how he loves even wicked cities, his patience with us. 
And even more than that, how he not only engages with us at the societal level, but how God engages with us at the personal level. Jonah teaches us that God's love and mercy is for broken people, it's for broken societies, it's for broken lives. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of our straying, in spite of our wandering, in spite of our resentments, in spite of our anger, and in spite of our outright disobedience, Jonah is about how God pursues us through all of that, loves us through all that. And he's intent upon showing us grace, so that's why he pursues us in this way. Okay. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on the first two verses and what do they teach us. And really, I want to answer three major questions. The first question is this. What do the first two verses tell us about God? What do the first two verses tell us about God? Number two, what do the first two verses reveal about us? What do the first two verses reveal about us? And then lastly, how do the first two verses already out of the gates lead us to Jesus? How do the first two verses right out of the gates lead us to Jesus? If you'll bow your heads with me, I want to pray and ask that God would give us ears to hear. Oh, Father, we, we come before you now. We're grateful that your word has stood the test of time and that thousands of years later, we get to read this story. And that not only this story would intrigue us, but that we might be shaped and molded and encouraged and exhorted and rebuked and challenged and all the things that we so desperately need. And so this morning, my God, I do pray you give us open eyes and open ears. Help us to see as you see and hear as you would have us hear. Give us clarity, my God, to see how you use a story like this to speak to your people even now. And I do pray because you know uniquely all of us and all of what we need, that you would meet our needs now uniquely by the power of your spirit through your word. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start. Jonah chapter number one, verse number one. It just jumps right into it. You know, this is interesting. There's no context given. Just jump right into the story. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, at a surface level, if we want to start here, we don't know a ton about Jonah. Like, when we read the Bible, there's not a ton of context given. There's not a ton of uh, storyline. It's not like David where you kind of get to see the son of Jesse, and he's got all these brothers, and here's some of his brothers' names. And we don't get that with Jonah. We just get really a couple of things. One is his name and the name of his father. That's kind of where it leaves us. And and I want to say that we should pause there and, and ask ourselves, The word of God is not arbitrary. So when God leaves something out, it's important. There's a reason. If God adds something into the story, it's important. We should ask ourselves why. You ever been reading the Bible and wonder why there's random details? Seems like that. Why? What's the detail? What's the importance here? Uh, One of those is is that God sometimes will, uh, he'll repeat himself in the Bible. And you might think, well, why is that? That's redundant, you know, especially for those of us who are maybe efficiency Nazis, you know, be efficient in your speech. Uh, you know, some of you moms that are parenting your kids, you're like this. You don't have to say it seven times. Um, you'd have trouble with my son. He stutters some. So everything's about seven times. But, um, you know, God does that often. The Proverbs is filled with God kind of returning back to themes. And the reason for this, God does not accidentally do this. He's not a stutterer. God speaks of these things over and over again because they are important. Well, here's what I'll say. Equally as important as when God leaves something out. Maybe asking why. Why not give us the details of Jonah's life? Why not convince us that this guy is the guy that should be sent to the largest Assyrian city at the time? 
that was full of wickedness? Why not convince us that Jonah's kind of, he's equipped for the role, you know? He doesn't do that. And I think that God's communicating something, and I want to give my best shot at what I think God's communicating. And, and one of the things that I think God's communicating here is I think he is refuting two major doubts that you and I have, and every Christian and every person who's ever lived probably have about the God of the Bible. He's refuting it right out of the gates with the story of Jonah being his prophet. The first doubt is this, that because God is so big, so vast, at least the God of the Bible, like the God who creates with his own words, the God who says, let there be light and there's light, the God who takes dust and breathes into dust and human beings are created. You know, this is a big, massive God who is powerful and omnipotent and slings stars in the skies. Now, one of the doubts that might arise in your heart then is if God is this big and he is governing the nations like a stream in his hand is the hearts of kings underneath God's authority. If that's true, then the doubt that might arise in your heart is that he is not too keen about the details of your life because you're kind of meaningless. You're kind of small. The theological way to put this would be because of God's absolute omnipotence, his sovereignty, his providentialness, his eminence is questionable. His relationalness is questionable. How could God be relational with me if he's doing all of these things? That doesn't make much sense. And right out of the gates here with Jonah, what we get is there's this unknown Israelite that we don't know too much about that's called by God to go to the largest, the largest and greatest pagan city of the day to preach his message and ultimately change the world. Now you might say, how do you think it changed the world, Court? Well, I just want to pose to you, why are we talking about it in Atascacita, Texas a couple thousand years later? You thought about that? Not just a couple, 4,000 years later, 5,000 years later, 6,000 years later. Here we are, we're standing here talking about this guy who was just kind of a relatively unknown Jewish man. Well, the reason that we're talking about it is because he changed the world. This, this single moment in history was impactful. And so first thing it does is it tells us that the bigness of God does not eliminate the eminence of God, the relationalness of God. That God is simultaneously ruling the universe and he's intricately involved in our lives and the details of our lives. Okay, what's the second doubt? The second doubt is this. Some of us, if we're honest, have probably thought this at one point or another in our lives. Why, if God is so good, does so much evil happen in the world and why does it seem like evil wins sometimes? Like if God's simultaneously all powerful and all good, don't you think it would be like with our powers combined, Captain Planet, that you would fix this stuff? Why not? That's, that's a question. I mean, it's a problem of evil. It's been a problem for a long time. But right out of the gates here with Jonah, what we see is that we are mistaking God's inactivity. Or let me rephrase. We're, we're mistaking God's patience for inactivity. That when God's patient and slow to anger and he doesn't step in and just immediately judge like he does with Ananias and Sapphira, we go, where's God at? You know, and we're always kind of like this when it's not us that's under the chopping block. You know what I mean? It's like when we sin, we're like, I hope God's patient with me. But when we see the sins of others, we're like, why is he not ending them forever? <laughs> you see this with James and John, right? Like James and John, the sons of thunder in the Bible. You know, they experience God's grace and they're happy about it. These other, I guess the Phoenician people had denied Jesus when he came to preach and they basically mocked him. And James and John say, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and smoke them, end them? And Jesus is like, like, who are you guys? Like, what are y'all talking? No, like, don't do that. But you understand it to them at one sense because this is how you and I are. When we've been wronged, we want justice. When we are the wronged one, we want grace, right? 
And so when we look at the problem of evil in the world, and listen, there's a lot of evil in the world, we could be asking ourselves, why is God so inactive? The Psalms are full of this. David says, why are you hiding your face from me, God? Why are you letting my enemies exult over me, God? This is a very common experience, but Jonah's teaching us right out of the gates that God is not inactive, and although he is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he does not, he does not rejoice over the destruction of the wicked. God also will not slumber forever. The Bible says that at this point, Nineveh's evil had come up and risen before him, meaning that it had gotten to the place where he was about to, re- he was about to act, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, and this was, there was going to be justice because there's just too much blood. And so this right out of the gates teaches us about God, that he's not, just because God's patient doesn't mean he's inactive. Okay. But there's another side to this. If we say that God not saying much about Jonah is important, we have to also ask ourselves, what do we know about Jonah and what's the importance of it? Well, here's what we know. We know his name and we know his dad's name. That's not nothing, okay? There's a significance to a name. You know, if you read through the Bible, we see this, right? God changes uh, Jacob's name to Israel. You've striven with God and live. God uh, changes Cephas to Peter, okay? You're on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He changes Saul to Paul. God has something about a name, right? So the names are significant. They mean something. And here's what their names mean. Jonah means dove, which a dove is always a symbol of peace. And Amittai means my truth. Now, I don't want you to go, you know, 21st century postmodern on me. When I say my truth, I don't mean like, oh, really? My truth? Oh, I like this. No. God's truth. That's what his name means. So you have, you have the son of peace, right? Or the man of peace who's the son of truth. This is the idea here. My truth, man of peace. Now, why is this significant? Well, let's get into the reality of Nineveh boots on the ground because I think that it has everything to do with why these names are important. So let's talk about what Nineveh was like in 750 BC. Nineveh was, and we get this, some of this is from the Bible and some of this is just reading history. Nineveh was a large city, a massive city. It would take you three days to travel across the city from one end to the other. Some say that the, this, is, this was the low estimate, by the way, the lowest I could find, that it was 48 square miles big, the city. That's huge, especially for an ancient city, because it's not like they're jumping in their car and driving across it, right? Like when we drive across Houston, it it takes a long time in traffic. Think about when you're just walking or you got your donkey, you know, that's what you're doing across the city, and it's populated, right? It's huge. It had 120,000 people in it at the time, which, again, because we're from Houston, we're like, huh, you know, baby city. All right, you got to remember, population at that time, this would have been a large part of the whole world, like a massive percentage of the whole world lived in one city in Assyria called Nineveh. It was a place filled with commerce, right? You had a lot of trade going through there. And so because everybody kind of came and went through Nineveh, the influence of Nineveh spread to the whole world. Um, What this city did ended up making its way everywhere. Another thing that's important to know about Nineveh is it's a war machine. Like Assyria is a massive empire, and they are warriors, brutal warriors. The most brutal, like it's hard for me to think of a modern equivalent of the brutality of these people. They had monuments to doing some of the most evil things. Like think Geneva Code doesn't exist. Let's just say that. There's no war crimes. They're doing terrible things to the nations around them. And not only that, but because they do these terrible things, these warriors, they come back into the city and just just violence is their life. And so violence and evil kind of runs rampant in Nineveh. And God, at this point, has gotten to the place where he's going to bring judgment because of the violence, the brutality. And in particular, one thing that Nineveh was known for was their sexual immorality. Now, 
All of this is centered in Nineveh around their idolatry. You have to understand that Nineveh is a city that's built upon a number of pagan idols, and one pagan goddess in particular kind of runs the show. And this pagan goddess's name is Ishtar, and here's the weirdness of it. She's the goddess of war and love or fertility, which is, a, which is an odd combination. Can we agree? She's, she's the goddess of war and the goddess of fertility, and it goes something like this. This is her play for the city of Nineveh. Basically, to worship this goddess... You were, you were worshiping her that she offered victory in battle and she offered fertility for the women. And so the way in which you would worship her was that, this is the weird part, you would sacrifice people. Child sacrifice was common in this city. Also, they had temple prostitution, which was a very dark practice. Herodotus calls it something like this. The temple prostitutes were the women who were forced to agree to relations with any man who entered the temple of Ishtar, any man who entered the temple. These women were forced into relations with this man. This man would then in turn give finances to the female, the the temple prostitute, who would be forced to take that money and give it to the temple of Ishtar out of worship for this goddess. And the promise was that there would be victory in battle for the men, fertility for the girls. So some of these women who wanted to be fertile and have kids in their own families would enslave themselves into temple prostitution in order to receive this fertility. Does this make sense? And the way they would do it was they obviously had to give themselves away. Now think about this. It's so backwards, right? Saying, I promise you fertility, and one of the ways that you're going to do that is deny the sacredness of human life. And many of this, this city was called full of blood. This is what the book of Nahum calls it. The bloody city, full of lies and plunder. There is no end to their prey. That's what God says in the book of Nahum. It's a wicked place. They ultimately, they get, they get condemned not just for their brutality, but the fact that their evil had infected all parts of the world because remember, they're a center for the world. So everybody's coming to them and then taking these practices back to their towns. Okay, but it doesn't stop there, you know, because if you look at tradition, where did Nineveh come from? Like, where did it start? And this is really intriguing. What history tells us is that most likely Nineveh was founded by a guy named Nimrod and he lives up to his name. Um, In the book of Genesis chapter 10, it tells us that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And tradition goes on to tell us that Nimrod was most likely the man who was the founder of the city Babel. Do you guys remember the city Babel? Okay, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the city Babel was a town where the the people got together after the flood of Noah and said, we don't want to ever have to be subjected to God's judgment again. Let's build a tower that's too high and we can't be flooded anymore so that we can be preserved and we'll make a name for ourselves on the face of the earth. God looks down on the people at Babel and he scatters them across the earth because he says, I want to confuse their languages that they might do something like this and and work together and basically build this tower into the heavens for a name, basically making themselves God. It's a city of self-worship. The founder of the city is named Nimrod. He gets confused, scattered, and guess what he does? He goes and founds another city, Nineveh. And he founds a handful of other cities that are around in Assyria, but Nineveh is the one that's the most long-lasting, and it becomes the capital of this great empire, Assyria. And so the very foundation of Nineveh is built by a guy who was committed to self-worship like no one ever had been before. That's why God calls it a city full of lies, because it's built on a foundation that you can be God. All right. Now, why is it significant? Well, here's why. Here comes God ready to bring his message to this city called Nineveh. And who does he choose except the son of truth, the man of peace? That's what their names literally mean. 
Or maybe it's like this. The path to peace for any city or any person can only be found when it's built on the truth of God. Or maybe something like this. Only God's truth gives birth to peace. That makes sense? Only the truth of God can really birth peace. And what's the flip side of that? Lies can only give birth to destruction and ultimately doom and death. So any society and any person that builds itself on the lie of self-worship is doomed to death, but any city or society or person who builds their life on the truth of God gets peace. So this is why Jonah's call to arise and go to Nineveh is so significant. Now, now if you read here and you see that he's supposed to call out against the city, why is that? Is it because, you know, is is that the whole God thing? God's always against the cities? No, here's why. If there's a city built on lies, anytime you stand for the truth, you are always going to be standing in opposition to it, even if you're the most kind person in the world. If a, if a whole people group had committed to a conspiracy of lies, then anyone who's sent to go and say something that's true is going to be in opposition to it. Does this make sense? So it's not like God can go there and say, hey, give them some advice on how to tweak some things about Nineveh because then it'll be. No, it's directly in opposition. Everything that's true about God, they have now turned on its head. And so he has to stand to preach. But here's what I want to bring to you. And this is something that we have to learn maybe about God's character. But God in his wisdom has a way of building the very essence of the message that he wants to bring into the messenger himself. Isn't that incredible? It's like he wants to bring a message of truth that will bring peace. So what does he do? At least a generation before, he has a a man named Amittai that is born and named my truth, who will then have a son named Peace that then he will send to Nineveh and embody the very message that he's called to bring. It's incredible. Now, this leads me to point number two and maybe question number two. What in the world does that reveal about us? Like, what does that mean for you and me? Here's what I'll say. It means that you and I were meticulously created and designed by God for his purposes, just like Jonah was. You were meticulously created and designed by God for his purposes and his glory. God knows you. God created you. God has called you out and then sent you into a chaotic and fallen world, all for his glory. That's what this teaches us. It teaches us that the details of your life are not incidental, but they're actually ingredients that God has placed for your life to be a story and a monument of his grace. Is the craziest parts of your life that you kind of are ashamed of and you're like, oh, I don't really like telling that part of my story. No, that's the part of your story that God's designed for him to get glory and for you to get joy. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter number one. John chapter number one. I want to read this story. It's one of my favorite stories in uh, the early days of Jesus's ministry. I've, I've mentioned it at least once, one other time. I'll catch you up to where you're going here. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. He's calling disciples to himself. Um, And Jesus just has a way of doing this uniquely. Like he calls uh, Peter uh, on a boat. He's a fisherman. So he calls him on a boat and he calls him through catching a ton of fish after Peter's basically exhausted himself all night trying to catch fish and catching nothing. Jesus calls him to himself by catching thousands of fish that break the nets and sink his boats. It's just kind of frustrating and funny and amazing all at once. Um, you know, Jesus goes to Matthew at his job as a tax collector, and he calls him right out of the tax booth to himself. He finds Zacchaeus and calls him, who's a smaller guy, out of a tree 
um, and calls him down to go to his house. Jesus has a way of calling people in these unique scenarios, and they're not incidental. They're, they're specific. But this one here always has stood out to me. This is the calling of Nathaniel through his brother Philip. Now, I want you to read this with me, and then I promise we're going to make a straight line, draw a straight line to Jonah. But let's go to verse 43. It says in John 1, verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip just follows. And that's one thing I just, I'm always baffled by is Jesus just says, follow me. And people are like, well, okay. Now, I don't know if these guys are just losers. They have nothing to do with their lives or it's because God, I think it's more likely that it's Jesus is powerful in his calling. But watch this. So Philip's from Bethsaida and he finds Nathanael. And he said to Nathanael, we have found him. We found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I love this line. I love this line because I grew up in a small town, and so it feels like somebody talking about me. Is anything good come from your place? Like, really? He's dubious about this guy. This guy's the Messiah. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. Like, yeah, probably not, right? Okay, now watch what happens. Nathaniel says to him, come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. I love this. He sees Nathaniel coming from far off. He wasn't involved in the conversation with Philip and Nathaniel, and he speaks to him in a way that would let him know, I know you don't believe in me. I know you don't think I am that guy. So he says, oh, here's one that can't get the wool pulled over his eyes. Right after they just had this conversation, right? Nathaniel catches this because here's what he says. He responds, how do you know me? I love this response. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now watch Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Okay, what? It's like Peter gets a miracle where 5,000 fish or something go into the net, something ridiculous, and he gets, I saw you under the fig tree. You're like, you're my Lord. You know, it's like, what happened? Okay, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Jesus is kind of prodding at him with this, but Jesus knows full well that only Nathaniel and only Jesus know what happened under the fig tree. And for him to say that I saw you before Philip came to you and I saw what happened under the fig tree, this, whatever went on there, and we don't know what that whatever is, this and only this could have been known by only Nathaniel and God. And so for him to say, I saw you, that was it for him. And Jesus kind of digs at him and says, why? Because I said you're under the fig tree? It's no, because you knew me before, or you knew me in a way that no one else could know me. He says, you're going to see greater things than these. Okay, let's go back to Jonah here. Is it possible that Jonah is born and like he knows that somehow his name and his father's name is going to get wrapped up into this big calling that's going to change the world? Probably not. But now when we look back at it, there's this amazing wiring from not just Jonah, but from Jonah's father. This is a generational plan that God has to take this almost nobody and to send him into the greatest city of the day and to preach the gospel. Now, what this means for you and what it means for me is that God knows us. And like, it looks something like this. Maybe you got invited to church today and you, know, you didn't even know you were going to come or whatever. And God looks at you and says, before your friend invited you, I knew you. It's like, well, why did you become a Christian? Well, somebody shared the gospel with you. And God says, no, before they shared the gospel with you, I knew you. And then you're like, oh, well, okay, God knows me. No, this is like God telling you, you know that time, that thing that you don't want anybody to know about and you kind of hide it and you're ashamed of it? I know that part of you and I called you anyway. 
That's what he says here. This idea that, Jonah, I knew you before you were born. Jonah, I knew I was going to send you to Nineveh before. I knew that your, I knew the, your father would be the father of the man who would go to Nineveh before your father was born. It's this idea that the plan for Jonah to go to Nineveh was planned long before he ever even existed. But it's this idea that God not only knows your past and he knew you there, but he knows your present and he knows the future that you're going to have, that he's sending you into that future that he's designed for you. Now, you might be like, okay, fine, Court. I'm called, but what, I don't even know what I'm called to do. What am I called to do? Like, what, what's unique about me? And here's what I'll say. Although I don't know the specifics of, your, of the details of your calling because I don't get to wear that hat, but I'm really confident I can tell you what you're called to do because the Bible is not silent about it. Just like Jonah, you and I have been called to be the bearers of God's message of mercy to a fallen world. And just like Jonah, he intends to weave this message into your very soul, the very fabric of your being. And he's been accomplishing this since the day you were born. You were meant to be a vessel of God's mercy. And so that means that maybe even some of the things that you don't like about your past are meticulously designed by God that he might show the immeasurable riches of his mercy through you. This is how Paul saw this. Paul said, I am the chiefest of all sinners so that God might show the immeasurable riches of his mercy and grace to a coming generation. He saw all of his past as being designed by God so that when he preached the gospel, no one could say, I'm too far gone. Because Paul could say, well, or you could be me. (laughs) Right? All right, now this is the key. This is the key of the first two verses. To God, the life of the messenger is always meant to bolster the validity of the message itself by the very existence and story that that messenger brings with him. So here you got Jonah, whose name means peace, whose dad means name means my truth. In, and what's going to happen here is you're not going to see Jonah's story just kind of go linearly. It's going to be different than that. And it leads me to question number three and how we can answer it. How does this text in the very first two verses of Jonah lead us to Jesus? And here's what I'll say. If God wanted Jonah to be the hero of this book, it would have been one chapter long. And it would have went something like this. God called Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh and preached. God saved Nineveh. Jonah celebrated. That's how it would have been. Now, what do we know? That's not how it goes. And here's the thing. How relatable is that? Because I don't know about you. I said it to the nine, and no one tend to, tended to agree with me at first, so maybe it's just me. I always take the long way around when it comes to obedience. It's like, if, I, if I'm going to, God's like, do you want to take the easy road or do you just want to wander for, you know, 40 years in the desert? It's like, I'll do the wandering, please. Thank you. I, when they think of the spies, the spies, Caleb goes, says, we can take them. I'm like, ah, they're big. You know, let's, let's just hang out in the desert. It ain't that bad out here. You know, like there's manna. That's kind of cool. That's me. I take a long way around to obedience, and that's what Jonah does here. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest. If you're honest with yourself, at least sometimes in your life, that's you too. You take the long way around. Now, here's what Jonah's teaching us. The long way around is used by God to bolster the credibility of his message of mercy. He takes all that fallenness about you, and he uses that for his glory. And he uses it in a way that when you look back at it, you're like, maybe that was his plan. I don't know. You think about that for a second. It's like, how can bad things be God's plan? It's like, I don't know. He just does it all the time. It's like everything he does, like all the really bad thing I thought was really bad, ended up being good. You know the very central focal point of this? It's the cross of Christ. 
All the disciples are weeping about the cross of Christ. It becomes the very boasting, the very boast of their message like 40 days later. Paul's like, you know what I boast in? The death of the Savior. That wasn't true like the night after, right? This is always how God works. The reason for this is because the story of Jonah is as much about a story that God is merciful to Jonah as it is about a story that God is merciful to Nineveh. You see, we see Nineveh and say, oh, how merciful God is towards Nineveh. No, no, it starts with how merciful is God towards Jonah. And the reason for that is because it's not until the end of Jonah that we see this full come, come full circle that Jonah has to first see the Nineveh in himself before he can go preach to the Nineveh that has fallen. He has to first find himself at the bottom of the ocean in need of God's mercy before he can go to Nineveh, who's at the bottom of their fallenness, and tell them that God can still save you. Are you seeing this? God lets him go to Tarshish so he can see what it means to be at the bottom, so that when he goes to the bottom, he knows that God's mercy can still save them. And you know what's crazy? It's still not even until after that that he really starts to realize the mercy of God. When God calls a person to carry the message of his grace, he must first lift the veil from his eyes and make him see just how deeply he needs the grace that he is set to proclaim. The first step to being the messenger and vessel of mercy is to realize you first have to receive it. And when I say have to receive it, I don't mean like, oh, you know, it's kind of like when you get a new TV and there's a nice feature. I could use it or not. That's not what we're talking about here. The, the bearers of the message of grace have to realize if I don't get the grace, I die. And then they can really be preachers of the grace. Now, I don't know if your kids have gotten here yet, but I feel like I have to say, have your kids gotten snobby with you yet? Are they old enough to do that? It's, it's sweet when it, they're young, like in a weird way. It's sweet, like, ha ha, I might ground you. You know, it's like, but it starts young and it starts to get more advanced. Like they get more, they get better at their snobbiness. And what I mean by this is they kind of look at you and think they can do it better. Like at five, it's like they can dress themselves better and it's easy to kind of refute this because you just have to give them a mirror. It's like you're wearing a dress, Jonas. Like that's not what you should have on. You know, you just kind of look at it and it's like, okay. But as they get older, they start thinking they're smarter than you. Uh, then as they get older than that, they go into college. They start, they start kind of looking back and having a little bit of moral superiority with you. Anybody? All right, I'll just say for me in my, my life. I did this with my parents, and it was something like this. You know, when I get Jonas off the bus right now, the bus driver makes me be there whenever he gets off, right? Like, I literally have to wave at her, or she won't let him off. She'll drive around with this kid forever until I'm there. And I thought about my childhood, and I'm like, you know what my bus driver did? It's like they opened the door, get off. And they didn't drop me off at my house. See, that's another thing. Like, they dropped me off like six streets down, and I had to walk through the neighborhood, and I thought about this later. I'm like, my parents must have not cared at all. Like, they weren't anywhere around. I got home, you know, and, and when I got home, it wasn't like my parents were there or there was a babysitter. It was like, lock the door. That was my childhood. And so I think back on that now, and I'm like, my, like what were they at? Like, what were they doing? And this is where he gets some moral superiority, right? You start thinking, like, did, did my, par my parents crazy? Like, did they care about children? Like, or did they not care about human life? And listen, your kids are going to do that to you. Like, it's coming for you. Like, you think you're, I, I, you're a helicopter mom, so you think, like, they're going to, no, they're going to hate you for that. They're going to say, like, you didn't let me experience life. You know, you're like, I saved you from death. What do you mean? But that ain't going to how it's going to work for you. I'm just letting you know right now. And here's why. Because there's something innately woven into you and me that makes us look back at, at other people, at other generations, at other stories, and even at our neighbors and say, I'm not really like them. I'm better than them. 
Like, I'm, I'm morally superior to them. It's what makes us read Jonah, hear about Nineveh, and not think, that's kind of like us. Like, I had a whole other sermon. Like, this is my second version of this, where I was just going to show, here's America and here's Nineveh. We're kind of close. I'm not even kidding. And it's convincing. When I read it, I'm like, oh, my goodness. But at first reading, when I read Nineveh, I'm like, who could be this wicked? And you know why? Because I'm like, my, my son is. I'm like, I'm like, my kids are. It's like, they look at me and like, who could be so stupid? I look at Nineveh and I think I'm nothing like them. And what God does for us in his grace and what he did for Jonah is he first has to show Jonah you're like them before he sends them to them. Before he sends Jonah to go preach the message to the Ninevites, he's got to show him there's a lot of Nineveh in you. Before the children of Israel got into the promised land, he had to show them there's a lot of Egypt in you. Don't think that because I judged Egypt with the plagues that the plague's not in you. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel, even though it only took them a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. God has a way of showing us his grace and mercy and just how much we need it before he sends us to go and be proclaimers of it. And so I want to say this. The fact that your life required the grace of God is not a bug in the system. It's a feature of the system. Like the fact that you needed the cross that Jesus died for is not like, oh man, you messed it up. It's like, no, that's exactly the point. Like there's no one who walked into church one day and said like, I'm here to tell people about Jesus because they really need him and they didn't first need him. And it's not like you needed him at summer camp 98 and now you don't need him anymore. It's like you've needed him every breath you've taken. It's like you breathe in, you're like, oh, I'm a sinner. Who need Jesus. That's how it should be. You walk into your job, you should probably think like, you know, Jesus would not act the way that I act. That's why I need him. Or maybe I'll put it like this. It's the prison, not the palace, that allows Joseph to be a forgiving man to his brothers. It's not the palace that shapes us like that. It's the prison. It's the darkness. It's feeling low. When you're at your lowest, that's how God shapes you to be able to be the minister to the lowly. David was made the king as a shepherd and in the cave at Adullam, not at the palace. When he's in the palace, he's, he, he goes to Bathsheba. When he's in the cave, he's the man after God's own heart. It's not Peter when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration that makes him the great preacher at Pentecost. It's Peter when he's denied Jesus three times and Christ meets him on the shore and says, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. It's not Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, who has a better moral record as a Jewish zealot than you and I will ever have. Paul's moral record would make you and me look like murderers. And that's not what motivated him to be a tour de force for the gospel. What motivated him to be a tour de force for the gospel is when Jesus met him on the way and showed grace to the murderer that he was. That changed him forever. So the last name here that I want to close with is this. It's, it's, it's intriguing. But you know what the, word, the city Nineveh means? It means the house of fish. <laughs> Jonah's going to get sent to the house of fish. But he's first got to live inside a fish. He first has to know what it's like to be in the house of fish, to need God to vomit him out or else he'll die before he can go and preach that message of mercy. He's got to be and actually be the stomach bile before he, because that's how, he, that's how Jonah views them. That's why he's mad later. He views these people as like stomach bile. They're evil as evil as evil can be. Why don't you squander them? And God has to show him in one of the worst ways ever, he's that. 
and that God loves him too. And then finally, of course, we get the real truth of the first two verses, which is that God is setting up a story that's greater than Jonah's story. And the father of truth is going to send his son, the prince of peace, to go into the fallen city and to preach the good news of the gospel, the better word than Jonah could ever bring. Jesus is the true story of these first two verses. The prince of peace, whose father is all truth, condescends, comes into the fallenness and brings the gospel. It's not coincidental that a dove descends on Jesus' head while he's baptized and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so this morning, this is a simple call. What should we do then with it? Well, it's this. Arise, Jonah, or arise, church, and receive the grace that is in Christ Jesus so that you might go bring the good news to the Nineveh that's all around you. You see, it's whenever we realize that we're like the Ninevites, then we can look around at our fellow neighbors and say, oh, they need the same message of grace that I need. More important than us building bunkers and so that whenever God decides to rain down the judgment on the United States, we can at least get in and eat our, you know, MREs for 40 days. More important than that would be that we would get outside of that, go into the land that's fallen and preach the good news of God's grace. And the only way that you have the courage to do that or feel like that's even necessary or that anyone else is worthy is to realize just how unworthy you were when that message came to you. And so this morning, I pray that the wonder of the gospel would overtake you again and to realize that you have been extended the best news you could ever be offered and that it's life, it's Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Son of Truth. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful for right now where I stand, that you knew me. You knew me before I was ever called to you. You know me now as I really am. And you know who I will be, who I'm becoming, and who you're making me to be. And so thank you that that's true, not just for me, but for everyone under the sound of my voice, that you have known us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ, you were willing to die for us. That just like Nathaniel, you know whatever the fig tree moment is in our life. You've known us. Whatever makes us ashamed. You've seen us there and you've welcomed us in. And so now we ask, as we come and sing, as we take of your supper, would you help us to be, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Restore to us the joy of what it might have felt like, even though he was grimy and nasty, to be, to be expelled back onto the earth after being at the clutches of death's door. Restore to us that kind of joy that you've given us life and you've created us for a calling. Lord, now as we sing and as we take of your supper, heal that which is broken. Encourage that which needs encouraging. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Give us joy all over again in you, Jesus. And we do pray it in your precious name. Amen.